Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first ever episode of Conversing with Creatives. My name is Jay Kasikov, and I'm a guy who decided to hop on the podcasting bandwagon and create one of my own. The goal of this podcast is going to be to talk with people who are involved in creative professions and fields and to pick their brains and try to learn about how they became successful in what they do. Our first ever guest is Chris Patola. Chris is currently a college basketball announcer and broadcaster for CBS Sports. Prior to his time in broadcasting, he was an assistant coach for legendary coach Mike Krzyzewski at Duke University. He also played college ball at West Point and served five years in the United States Army. Before we get to my conversation with Chris, I'd like to share with you the story of how we met. Two years ago, when I was a freshman in college, I was at a Lafayette basketball home game. Chris happened to be broadcasting the game that night, though I didn't know this right away. At halftime, I get up to go to the bathroom. As I'm walking adjacent to where the announcers sit, I see Chris get up and start walking in the same direction I'm headed, only a few paces in front of me. I immediately recognized him, took some ridiculously long steps to catch up to him, and blurted out, Hey, Chris! Yeah, I was awkward. We had a nice little chat on our way to the bathroom, and the first impression I got of him was how nice he is. He was super friendly and was plenty happy carrying a conversation with a random 19-year-old he didn't know. A year later, I started announcing Lafayette basketball games for the college radio station. One game, I forget who Lafayette was playing, Chris was back in Easton, announcing that game for CBS Sports. I again approached him, and unless he's an unbelievably talented actor, he remembered who I was, and we started chatting again. I saw Chris, I think, one other time that year. Now it's the present day, and I thought, who better to have as my first podcast guest than Chris? It was great talking to Chris, we had an awesome conversation, and I learned a ton from him. Everybody, keep doing what you're doing, and enjoy the podcast. Here's Chris Spatola. Man. I'm doing really well. How about you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. I really appreciate it. This, this is awesome. Of course, man. This is easy. No problem at all. Yeah, great. Um, so I would say this will mostly be uh, fairly biographical about you. Uh, we'll probably talk about sort of the different stages of your life, some different career paths, things of that nature. All right. Yeah, fire away, whatever you got. Yep. All, right. All right, great. So I guess it's logical that we start at the beginning. Where, where did you grow up? I grew up in Massachusetts, um, and I went to a, a prep school in Massachusetts uh, called Lawrence Academy. And my dad has been a teacher for over 40 years. He was a high school coach. He was my high school coach. Uh, so I grew up in New England. And... Um, so I grew up a uh, Red Sox Patriot, yeah. and you know I'm I'm New England through and through. So that's that's where I'm from. Yeah, for sure. A lot of my a lot of my close friends are are big Boston guys, big Boston sports fans. So I know the type. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, for sure. You grew up playing for your dad. He was your high school coach. So what is that, what is that like playing at a pretty high level high school basketball for your dad? You know, it, it's it's incredibly, incredibly rewarding and on a couple levels. A, you, you, you get to you get to have a relationship with your dad that most 
kids don't get to have with their parent, right? I mean, you get, obviously, you got the father-son relationship, but then you have a coach-player relationship that not a lot of people get to share uh, with their with their dads. Um, and, and so that was that was cool. I mean, it, it was tough at times. My dad was was more on the side of of uh, old school disciplinarian type coach, so it could be tough at times. Uh, but but it was really rewarding in that respect. And then, you know, you're trying to do something like I, you know, I always wanted to go to college and play basketball, and so you know, to have your dad sort of along that process with you. You know, sort of going through the recruiting visits and going through the the evaluating of, of schools and coaches and all of that. Uh, to have your dad slash coach go through that with you was was pretty cool as well. So it was it was it was something. Again, it was tough at times, but it was it was something I would I would uh, cherish and do cherish for forever. You've been playing basketball your whole life. Your dad's your high school coach. Um, so at what point in either in your high school career or before that, did you say, did you realize that college basketball was going to be for you? What was that, what was that process like? Uh, where did you think you wanted to go versus where you ended up at Army? Uh, what was that like? It was, it was, uh, there was a point in time when I was in high school and, and my parents, uh, you know, sort of sat me down and we were talking about the future and, and, you know, they, my dad was a teacher, so he wasn't making a whole making a whole lot of money, and and you know, so college was depending on where I wanted to go. It was sort of a you know, it'd be nice if if you could go to to, to college, get a free education, yeah, and play sure. basketball, and you know that would help our family a lot. So that was sort of where it started. But I again, I grew up playing. My dad played in college, so it was always something that was that was inbred and and something that. Um, you know, I knew that I, I ultimately wanted to do where I wanted to go. I mean, I wanted to like, like every kid, I mean, I wanted to play at the Dukes and, and, and the, the Indianas. And I mean, I wanted to play at the best schools as most kids do growing up. That was the, when I, when I became a coach at, at Duke, that was the biggest pain in the ass for us was, was having to convince a kid that you're not that good. But, uh, yeah. I was, I was that kid for a while, but eventually yeah, I knew I wasn't going to get much bigger than I than I was. Um, you know, you start to get the hint as certain schools are recruiting you and other schools are not recruiting you. Uh, and so, you know, I just started to figure it out and then allowed the recruiting process to, to unfold. Uh, but I always knew, I think probably my sophomore, junior year in high school, I knew that I would have the opportunity to play in college, which was which was really cool. So you always knew you wanted to be a college basketball player from a young age, you had that aspiration. Be- beyond college, when when you're a kid, uh, your mindset as a kid, did you think that basketball would be something that you would make a career out of? No, it was not. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I guess teaching and being a coach was something that that I always thought about, um, you know, at one point I wanted to be a lawyer and I, it's funny cause I still have interests outside of basketball. Like everybody's like, man, you must eat, breathe and, and soak up basketball. And you know, it's one of the reasons I got, got out of coaching is I did, I do have other interests. I mean, I, um, you know, I did school plays when I was in high school. I cool. sang in the chorus. Uh, you know, I did, Model UN. I mean, I had other interests outside of basketball, uh, and that was one of the 
I mean, West Point was something that found me. It was never something that I grew up saying I was going to go to Army. Uh, but it ended up working out because I, you know, I've, I had always had interests on a, uh, on a much broader level than just sports. So it was never something where I was like, man, I'm going to grow up to be a basketball player, then I'm going to be a coach, and then I'm going to be in broadcasting. It was never like that. Uh, I, I really never knew what I was going to do. And, and I, in all honesty, when I went to West Point and when 9-11 happened, I mean, I, I could have, anything could have happened in my life. At, at that point, I didn't even think I was going to have control over it. So it just, I was never really that hyper-focused a, a person as far as what my career was going to be because I always had varying interests. Yeah, that's that's comforting for for myself to hear as a as a young person, as a junior in college. Uh, it's cool to know that people who are you know happy with with what they're doing didn't always have it figured out, didn't have this detailed plan of where they were going to go. It's it, it's 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 cool to see that. Yeah, it, it's you know what, and it's it's funny because when I got into broadcasting, when I when I got out of coaching, and I I it said. The, to Coach K, you know, I looked at, I don't know if this is for me. I'd like to try and, and do something else. And uh, when, when I got into the broadcasting, it, I didn't even know if that was going to be something that I that I enjoyed. It was sort of something to keep me in the game and, and sort of give me another outlet. Um, and it turns out I've really enjoyed it and, re- and really liked it. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, these, these college students kids your age or, or even even people just out of college I mean it, it's so it's so hard to know exactly what it is you want to do and um, and it's it is I mean it's 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 a work in progress I always tell people so yeah so we'll we'll, we'll get to, we'll get more into that your coaching broadcasting transition and, and where you are right now but let's uh we'll go back we'll go back down memory lane for a second and Take take us back to when you're you're playing college basketball at Army. So you played four years there. You're the fifth leading scorer in West Point history. You led the Patriot League in scoring your junior and senior seasons. I will continue to tout your accomplishments for the next I'd say twenty minutes. So just uh just sit tight. Um, so actually, you actually scored forty three points against Lafayette, my school, in two thousand one. I was only six years old yeah. at the time, so I, I never saw the game, but. I will say I'm holding I'm still holding some resentment uh about it. So <laughs> let's uh so as a player, how would you describe your overall game? What kind of player were you? Clearly you could score the ball. Uh we, if you want to compare your game to someone you, you can, but uh just some kind of description of, of who you were as a player. Yeah, you know, I overachieved at every level. I mean, I was I was 5'11" 150 in college. So I um and they tried every every way, which way to put weight on me, and it never worked. Um, so I was I was undersized. It was funny. I started out my first two years there, and I was guard. And my brother uh, came into West Point when I was a junior, and they moved him to the point more so because I I've always had this propensity to want to shoot the ball. Now whether or not it went in, it really never mattered to me. I just I love. I love putting the ball in the air. Don't um, we all? Yeah, we, exactly, exactly. And I, you know, and I wasn't necessarily. A, everybody assumes that I was like a shooter. I, I was never a great shooter. I, I, I mean, I would obviously I would shoot threes and what, but I was, I was, I was good at getting in the lane. I was a terrific foul shooter. Uh, that was probably the best thing that I did. Um, so there were other ways that I scored. It, 
it was when I played. There was a guy at Maryland, a guy named Juan Dixon, who who I really identified with, and and I was nowhere near the player that Juan Dixon was, but he was undersized. He was he was almost my size. Like every, I don't think people understood how small Juan Dixon was, but you know he wasn't a necessarily like a, sh- a shooting specialist, but he was a guy who was really good at coming off curls. He was really good at, at being crafty, how he could score it. So I always modeled my game after Juan Dixon. He was a guy that I really related to, and he was a competitor and a guy who I think overachieved for his size. And so if if there was one guy, that was sort of the guy that I modeled my game after. But I always, my numbers and everything were always always sort of, were an illusion. I they I think they just made me seem better than I really was. I just I played hard. I was tough uh and I overachieved. You weren't a big dude especially uh in terms of, you know, a Division 1 college basketball player. So what would you say then for basketball players who are smaller? What are some of the what would you say are some of the most important skills uh actual skills or just strategies for a small guy to be a a good a good player offensively and defensively? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, you know, I always say if you're undersized, you got to have one of two. Th- you either got to be a jet, you either got to be quick, or you got to be you got to be a, a, like a different kind of athlete. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I was fa- I mean, I was quick. So, like in the open floor, I was tough to keep in front, and and so I had uh, I was by no means an at the athlete side of that. So I, I you know, there there was that element to it. Um, you, you got to have it. You got to have there's got to be a latent toughness there and, and it, it not, not necessarily like a, you know, throwing punches kind of toughness, but a sort of an understated toughness about you. There's got to be a, a, an arrogance, a little bit of a confidence with who you are. Um, you know, there's got to be that level. And then you, you have to, there's got to be a skill set that makes you really tough to guard, be it your ball handling, be it your ability to shoot it. Um, be it again, if you're a really good athlete, the ability to finish at the basket, there's got to be some sort of element to it, uh, that makes you some sort of commodity that you have that says, okay, we have to play this guy. It, it you know, we overstate, okay, you got to be t- the intangible element. There has to be a basketball component to it. And then you've got to be able to combine some level of intangible toughness or, intelligence or whatever it is to sort of supplement whatever the skill set you have is. Let's move into some Patriot League basketball talk for a minute. Uh, I've seen my fair share of Patriot League basketball games as a student announcer here at Lafayette. Um, but so how would you say the league compares today to when to when you were playing? Uh, it's it, To me, it's a lot better, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we didn't have, like, take the team that, that I was still coaching at Duke when Lehigh beat us. Take that team. I and mean, we, we never had a team that looked like that. Uh, you know, we didn't have a team that looked like Mike Muscala's Bucknell team. Uh, we, we just didn't have those kind of teams. Uh, I think the additions of BU and Loyola are, are, have been great additions. Uh, you know, even those teams, I, you know, I know they didn't, uh, even the teams with, like, Maurice Watson and, and, uh, and DJ Irving, I mean, those teams, we didn't have teams that looked like that. So, I, you know, we were competitive. We had a good league. We, we certainly had teams a few years after I was there, like the Bucknell teams under Pat Flannery that, that were really good. And, and 
and even the Lafayette teams, my first couple years in a league that won the league, uh, those were good teams, you know, with Brian Ehlers and Stefan Choschitz, and those were really good teams. But the, the league now is the coaching, the, the players, the, the quality of play. Uh, it just, I, I, think it's, I think it's much, much better than, than, than when I played. So after two years at, a, at any of the military academies, you have the opportunity to end your commitment. I saw that you, you received an offer to transfer to Duke after your yeah. two years, but you decided against it. So can you talk me through that decision as it's clearly a, a big decision? Yeah, well, you know, and it, it, it sounds cliche, but, uh, you know, I'm, I, and, and I believe me, I did not necessarily enjoy every day I woke up at West Point. So it wasn't like I fell in love with it when I was there. Um, but I had made a commitment, you know, I, I had made a commitment to Pat Harris, who was my coach. I had made a commitment to my teammates. I, I had made a commitment to myself that I was, you know, the, the, the the best way to get through West Point is to say to yourself, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get through West Point. So I, I made a commitment to myself. You know, my parents are old school. So in talking to them, and it was a conversation. I mean, it, we, we had a talk about, you know, I don't know if I like it here every day. You know, I got a chance to go play at some other places. You know, I don't know if this is for me. And, and again, my parents are old school and, and commitment was important to us. So, and then also, you look at that Duke roster when I was making that decision. Yeah. I mean, it was Jay Williams and, and, and Chris Duhon. And, like, I wasn't going to play. So, ultimately, uh, ultimately, it was it was a lot of sort of values and, and feel-good stuff and then also a realistic look at, okay, you know, I, I got a chance to – and I still believe that we could do something special at Army. I mean, I still believe that we had a chance to – to make a tournament for the first time and all those things. So I, I did think about it. I took the time to sort of explore what the options were, but ultimately the decision was, was really Army all the way to stay there. You mentioned the values and commitment being uh, really informing your decisions there. Um, and so after you played, you ended up serving five years in the, in the military. So I wanted to ask you how going to West Point serving in the military, how those experiences have informed the rest of your life, either personally, professionally, like what have you taken away from the army that's going to stick with you? Well, the biggest thing is to the, how you, how you deal with failure. I mean, it, you know, um, that's the first thing, like you, you, you fail a thousand times, probably more than that, your freshman year there. And, and it's intended. I mean, it's, it's, it's baked into that system. Like you're you're meant to fail. How you sort of pick yourself up from that, move on, and and learn from those failures is a, is a big lesson. It's a big. It, it's a lesson that's not taught enough now between parents and their kids, between coaches and their players. It's just we've lost, I think, a little bit of that. It's okay to fail. Now, how you how you grow from that is ultimately why it's okay to fail. Uh, so that's the, that's the, the, the number one lesson uh, that I learned there. Um, and then the, the other thing I learned is, is to understand that we are, we are all a part of something that's bigger than us. 
And, you know, for me, I, I learned that especially my senior year. You know, 9-11 happened in my senior year. And, and you realize, wow, like this commitment I made to West Point was not just a commitment to go to school for four years and play basketball. Like, this was a much bigger commitment. And, you know, you don't really get a chance to learn that, like that you're a part of something that's bigger than you. And, and it can be, that's a lesson we all should learn at some point in our lives. So uh, those two things, among others, I mean, I, again, I tell people all the time, I, I, I didn't hate every day I was at West Point, but I certainly didn't like every day I was there. Uh, but I am certainly glad that I went through it. And it's, it's really good to, to be from there now that, that I've, I have been through it. You mentioned that the importance of failure and what you can learn from it and how you can improve, even though you have that sort of mindset, even though you know that failure can, can be beneficial, for you, does it make the fear of failure any less scary? Does it take anything away from that? Does it dull the effects or, or is it still just as potent? No, it, it, it's, it's just as potent. Um, but the, the, the thing about the thing about West Point is, you, you know, it's you, a you're going through it with other people, so like you're not alone in your failure. You're, 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 it's a part of the process. So when you're a plebe there, you're you're going through it with other plebes. You're you're going through it with your squad leaders. So and it's one of the great things that's cultural about the army is is yeah you're going to fail, but you're not you're not by yourself. And I think that that helps that process. Um, and then, you know, the other thing is there is a – it is extremely rewarding, Jay, to, to fail and, and, but to ultimately fight through that and, and reap the rewards. There's no better feeling. Like the day I graduated from West Point is to this day – I mean, marriage and all that stuff and kids being born. The, graduating from West Point was one of the greatest things that I'll ever experience in, in that – you know, you, again, you fail, you fail, you fail, but you continue to fight through it. And the feeling, and again, this is lost on it. Like a lot of kids, you know, I related to the transfer epidemic that we have now. Like every kid fails and, and every freshman wants to transfer. And, and the problem is now they are. Like there's no adult in the room to say, hey, look, failure is a part of the process. Now the kids just, they just pick up and leave. Whereas for me, you fail you fight through it, you experience success, and there's no more rewarding experience than that. And, and you learn how rewarding that is. It almost becomes a little bit like a drug, and I think that's what ends up making you a better person. At least it did for me. Yeah, it's a, it's a great lesson, and it's, it's interesting that you connect it to the, the transfer epidemic in college basketball. I mean, just a couple of examples off the top of my head. If we look at, if we look at Duke basketball, guys like... Nolan Smith or Quinn Cook, who didn't play so much, you know, their freshman and sophomore years, but ended up becoming really, really good players uh, for the program, great players. Uh, and, you know, yeah. and both won national championships. I mean, that, that, that's yeah. the, that, that is the, that's a great example. And believe me, I was there for both those kids, and both those kids wanted to transfer. They, I mean, that is, but the, the thing is, Jay, and he, this is a perfect example Nolan Smith had Johnny Dawkins. So Nolan Smith experienced failure, but he had Johnny Dawkins who was there to say, hey, look, man, you're going to have to fight through this. You're, you're going to, believe me, you're going to come out on the other end smelling great 
and feeling great. Quinn Cook had Nolan Smith. So Nolan Smith was saying those same things to Quinn Cook. So that's what, and then both those kids, they believe in that, they fight through it, and they both end up as national champions. Me, I end up as a, a captain in the Army and somebody who just deployed. And, and so that was the reward for me. But, but that's the thing. Like, that is, to me, the ultimate reward in life. Like, when, you've, when you have experienced rock bottom, when you experience failure, and you end up fighting through it and you become a better person on the other side. That's, you, you give two great examples there of, in, in, in Quinn and, and in Nolan. Yeah, exactly. C- coming out on the other side just feels that much sweeter. Yeah. So after you finish serving in the Army, you end up joining Coach K's staff at Duke in 2007, and you're on staff until, th- until 2012. So obviously you experienced and were a part of a lot of great moments. I mean, pick, pick any period of Duke basketball, you were probably a part of some great moments. But uh, can, you, can you tell us maybe one moment that was particularly special for you that people at home wouldn't necessarily know just from watching the games on TV, maybe something in the locker room, a practice, a team meeting, anything like that? Yeah. Um, man, I mean, there's a ton. You know, we that team in 2010 was incredibly special um, because of the journey, you know, the journey. And, and I don't know if anything like that will ever happen again where – you know, it was funny. I was watching a game the other day. I was watching uh, John Shire's class as a, as a freshman. And I'm looking at, at who John was as a player, and I'm looking at Brian Zubek on the bench. And, and, you know, he didn't play for three years. And Lance Thomas and, and sort of what those guys had to go through. And I joined the staff when they were sophomores. And, and you know, we lost to West Virginia that year uh, in the NCAA tournament in the second round. And we really, sh- we probably should have lost to Belmont in the first round that year. And then the next year, we lose in the Sweet 16 to Villanova. And, so, and then by the time those guys are seniors, like, it goes back to what we were just talking about. Like, those guys had experienced what failure tasted like. And they had experienced what losing how bad that felt and sort of, you know, that year, uh, I'll give you a quick story. We, we played at NC state and we got our butts kicked over at NC state and we didn't look good. And we, we, we didn't play well. And we were, that game was on a Wednesday at NC state and we were supposed to turn around and we were supposed to go to Clemson. And this was a year where Clemson was really, really good. They had a, uh, Trevor Booker was on their team. They were really good, and they were especially good at home. So we get blown out on the road at NC State, and we're supposed to turn around and go to go to Clemson on Saturday, and it was college game day. And when you're, you know, when college game day is showing up, like they're showing up at Clemson because they expect Duke to lose. So like we felt, we felt like we were being sent in for the for the kill for the slaughter, and we had just lost. And we get back to Duke. We talk to the team, and then we, we meet as a staff, and we always meet after a game. And Coach K said to our staff, he said, all right, guys, you know, what do you think? And so Wojo and Chris Collins and me and Nate James, like, we start talking, and we talk for, like, 30 minutes. And Coach K does not say a word. And this is one of the things that makes him the best in the business. He doesn't say a word for 30 minutes. 
and we're all the young guys. You know, we think we got all the air. We're young, and we're like, we need to throw them out of the locker room. We need to get all their stuff out of the locker room. They need to take their uniform away. And, and, and we're like, we want it to be hell for the next two days. And Coach K is nodding his head. And, and so after about 30 minutes, he says, okay, I've, I've heard enough. I've heard enough. He says, here's what we're going to do. He says, I want to get a, a, a buffet of food. I want a whole bunch of food in the locker room uh, for practice tomorrow. I said, okay. You know, he was talking to me. I said, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. And he said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to watch tape of, of the game. And we're going we're gonna to get ready for Clemson. And he said, I'm never going to raise my, bo- my voice above this level. And we're going to talk about what we did wrong at NC State. And he said, we're going to go up to Clemson. And we're going to beat Clemson because we're going to lock arms and we're going to be united and we're going to win. And he said, what the guys are expecting is they're expecting me to come in tomorrow and they're expecting us to throw them out of the locker room. They're expecting me to yell at them. They're expecting to watch tape of the game that we just watched and us to yell at them. And he said, and if we come in and we give them what they expect to hear, they're not going to listen to anything we say. We're not going to be united, and we're going to go up to Clemson, and we're going to get our butts kicked. And so sure enough, we came in. The guys had food. They ate their food. And we watched the tape of the NC State game, and Coach literally never raised his voice above this level. And he said, this is what we did wrong, and so and so forth. And he said, and here's what we're going to do when we go up to Clemson. And we put the Clemson tape in. We got our game plan in. And we let the guys leave. And part of the reason they played badly, Jay, at NC State was they were tired. So we didn't practice that day. But we didn't tell them that's why we're not practicing, because you're tired. But that ended up being a residual benefit of that. But sure enough, we lock arms. We go up to Clemson. We blow them out at Clemson. It's college game day. And that was really the turning point in that year for us. We end up winning a national championship. But that was... I'll never forget, you know, Coach K in that moment saying, you know, this is what they expect to hear. We have to give them the opposite of what they expect, and we're going to go up there and we're going to win. It was a really poignant moment. Yeah, that's a that's a great story. It's 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 really cool to hear that. I think so often you see that, you know, just it takes a very particular understanding and a really perceptive person to see, you know, what the team actually needs, you know, like yelling and screaming can't always, you know, be the default response. I mean, obviously it has its place sometimes, but you know, it's not always what's going to, what's going to help the team. There are different ways of doing it. And yeah. And coach K seems, seems to be one of the best at that. Yeah. Tone matters. I mean, I always tell people tone, tone matters. And so, you know, sometimes if, if you give people what, what they expect to hear, they're not going to hear any of it. Whereas if you, if you change the tone, it's like in a game. Like if the guys are playing horribly, they're down, you know, say they're down 15 to nothing to start a game and they come over to the timeout and they expect you to scream at them and, and yell at them and they're not going to hear any of that. But if they come over and you say, hey, look, guys, look, we're not going to play as bad as we've played these first two minutes of the game. Here's what we need to do. If you give them that tone, they'll hear more and they may settle down. It just... I always, the way I frame it now is tone matters, and you always got to pay special attention to the tone that you use in certain situations. Your, your story of, uh, from the 20, 2010 team, 
reminds me of something I read in one of Coach K's books. It may have been Leading with the Heart. Uh, I forget the particular circumstances of which year, which team it was, but uh, regardless, the team had gotten smacked one game, and you know all the players expect to get just completely, you know, reamed out the next day in practice, uh, running just the most intense, horrible practice. And the players come into the gym to see uh, the coach K had set up volleyball nets, uh, and they were just weren't even yeah. going to do basketball. They were just going to have fun and play volleyball, which is a similar kind of thing that you mentioned. Yeah, he, you know, once one of the years he had an ice cream sundae bar, um, and again, I mean, look, we 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 had games where we practiced, you know, we we. We put the guys through a lot, so I'm not. I mean, I'm not saying it's every time because again, yeah. that eventually they become tone deaf to that. But, uh, but there are certain circumstances where, and again, it also bleeds into the fact that, and this is where he again is. He's been doing it for almost 40 years, and our young assistants, we've only we don't have his experience. So, part of the reason our guys didn't play well at NC State is they were tired. So, how can you give the guys the, a, a day off? without actually giving them a day off. Well, you come in and you watch tape the whole time. So there's no contact. They don't have to run. But you still get a lot done. And you do it in a way where you change the tone. It just, I mean, you know, it, he's done a lot of that. And it's one, of, it's one of the things that makes him, he's out of the box. And it's one of the things that makes him the all-time winningest coach. You know, it just, uh, there's a reason for it. Yeah, no doubt. Uh just based on my high school sports experience, there was none of that. It was uh, you play poorly, just just straight running every every practice. Uh, obviously, right. there's a place for it, but it, it's not it's not always effective. Like you said, you become t- you become tone deaf to it. You don't learn from it. Yeah. So, so you're on staff at Duke for about five or six years, and it seemed as if you know you were squarely on the coaching path. Then you changed course and you got you got into broadcasting. Uh, you started to allude to it earlier. But what what changed for you? Why why not coaching anymore? Why why broadcasting next? You know, it, 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 it ended up being a lot of things. I mean, if there was one acute thing that sort of sparked it was was the way that recruiting is now. I mean, I you know you start to look at your life ten years down the road and you see sort of where recruiting is at this point in time. And I it, I didn't want to be a part of that going forward. Uh, sort of the world that it is, the, the, uh, the people you end up dealing with. Uh, I, I just, I didn't want to have to deal with that long-term, uh, quality of life was a big part of it. I mean, the life of a coach is a tough life and, uh, you know, it just, it's, it's not for everybody. And I enjoyed it. I learned a lot while I was a part of it. I got to win a national championship as a part of that staff. Um, and then it, I think more broadly, I just, I've always had other interests. You know, I, I now I, I do the broadcasting, but I, I do radio and, and I talk about other sports and I talk about other topics, more broad topics. Uh, I write for a, a political website called The Hill. Uh, so, I mean, I have interest in that. I mean, it just, I had, I had other interests outside of just waking up every morning and thinking about, okay, these are the recruiting calls I have to make. This is the game I have to get ready for, um, you know. And then I, I started having, uh, we started having kids, and so I get to spend more time with the kids. It, 
it started small and, and sort of narrow with the recruiting element to it, and then it sort of grew. And, and now that I'm doing it, now that I'm doing all these other things, and it allows me to, to exercise some other interests that I have, I, I just, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, that's great. Co- coaching really does seem like a, a very all-consuming kind of thing, and it's it's definitely beneficial to exercise all the things that you know that you like. So I guess from there we'll we'll move we'll we'll move into broadcasting. Can you tell me a little bit about your preparation for games that you're going to announce? I mean, you watch film. What exactly do you look for? Are you watching the game any differently than when you're watching as a coach? How does how does that work? You know, I watch it the same way that I did as a coach. In fact, the the, the element of broadcasting, pre- pre- preparing for a game, is the part that I loved when I was an assistant preparing for a team. When I had a scout or was getting ready, you know, to present to to our staff and to Coach K stuff that we had on a team. I, um, you know, I'll watch. Usually, when I'm preparing for a game, I'll watch the team's last three games. And then if they're playing an opponent that they have already played that year, I will watch that other game, you know, that game that they played early in the season. So I'll watch a lot of tape. I'll, I'll look at the box score. Um, I'll, I'll sort of take some things from the box score. I will, you know, I'll do all the analytics. I'll look at the Ken Palm and all that stuff and sort of get a story of the game. Like what is, what does this team have to do to beat that team? What does that team have to do to beat that team? What does this team do best? What does this team not do so well? What does this team do defensively in these situations? So I approach it like I would as a coach, and that's where the being an assistant and preparing for an opponent, that's where that informs the broadcasting element to things. Uh, and then I'll call. You know, I have relationships with a lot of the guys that, I'll end up doing games for mostly assistant coaches. So I'll call them and, you know, Hey, what do you guys have to do in order to beat this team? Or what, you know, what are you guys doing? Well, what's going on with your team? Give me some things on this guy. So, you know, I'll do all that. And then, you know, I get all my stuff ready to go. And then you go to the shoot around. You know, I may go to a practice the day before, but I'll definitely go to the shoot around and, um, you know, and you you talk to the to the coaches, and you talk to the head coach, and you sort of get your game plan for for the game, and, and that's uh, the preparation is not all dissimilar to the preparation as a coach. Let me ask you another uh, another more technical broadcasting question. So, when you're broadcasting a game, there are, there are definitely different kinds of fans that that will be listening to you. Some with you know a high degree of basketball knowledge, others with less so. So when you're so when you're broadcasting, how do you how do you strike a balance between speaking very technically about the game and at the same time keeping it somewhat light and, and casual? Because not everyone watching is a basketball aficionado. There's there's two things. A stories, stories, stories. I mean that's what people want to hear stories. And so you know, how you can sort of tell what a guy's going through or what a guy has is thinking or, or what a guy, you know, a background story on a guy. I mean, that, that's ultimately, that's what both casual and basketball people, casual fans and basketball people, they, they both universally want to hear. And then, you know, when you start to get into the X's and O's and there are, there are even casual and, and, and basketball people 
both want to hear the, the X and O's element of it. But you have to be careful of, of the language you use, you know, so the vocabulary you're using, you got to try to keep it pretty basic. And you just get, you know, you just feel, you just feel a balance for it. The other thing that, that I've started to do more as opposed to just, okay, analyzing literally each play, you also want to talk trends more. Like, okay, this is what this team has done over the last five minutes. This is why this coach has made this substitution. This is what this player is thinking. Like, it was always difficult as a player to guard motion offense. Why? It, so you're speaking more broadly, too, as opposed to, you know, that guy came off that screen and he, he, he shortcut it. And that's why if, instead of – I mean, you do a little bit of that, but more broadly is, is sort of it, – it keeps it more of a balance between the casual fan and the, and, and the actual basketball people. So – and you learn it. I mean, I, you know, I've been doing it for five years now, so you – you, you just sort of get more comfortable in, in what works and back to, to kind of other games you've done and you and you just see what, what sounds better and what, what works. What would you say you miss most about coaching? Uh, competition. Yeah. First and foremost, got the competition. I mean, I, you know, and it's, and it's also the reason that I, I – one of the reasons I got out because I didn't want to live and die by wins and losses, but I, I, I do miss it. And I don't miss it as much. I missed it my first two years off the bench. I, yeah, you know, just kind of being in the, the euphoria of winning a game or, 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 uh, you know, you don't miss the losses, but you, you miss the competition. You miss being on the bench in, in a, in a tight game. And, and, uh, so I miss that. I miss, uh, yeah, I miss working with guys and younger people. I mean, I, I run camps during the summer, so I get I still get a feel of that. But yeah, you miss coaching the game and working with younger people and 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 helping uh, helping younger people in that respect. But uh, the competition, first and foremost, I mean, I, I miss that. I miss that the most. Yeah, for sure, it's a hard thing to replace or duplicate in some of in some other way. It's very unique, I think. So you were talking about uh, talking about working with guys is is one of the things you missed. Now this is a this is a this is a question that's almost unreservedly for me because I'm a I'm a big Duke basketball fan. But who would you say is the toughest player that you've ever coached? Now, maybe you don't want to name one. You can you can give me a, a couple names if you'd like. Who's the toughest? Like toughness. He was a tough guy. Like a, yeah, like a tough player, not necessarily you know most physically imposing, yeah. but the toughest guy on the court. Yeah, Kyle Singler by a landslide. Wow. Landslide. Yeah, it's not even close. I mean, Zubek, you know, Zubek was tough that year, but but Kyle from his, I mean, I was there when Kyle was a freshman, till so he was a senior. He was not. I mean, he was a good good player. He was not the most gifted athlete, but that kid was tough as nails. I mean, he. Stitches, injuries. Uh, he was as tough as it gets. It was he was as tough as it gets. Yeah, that was for me one of the one of the most fun things about watching him was the the way he competed. Uh, you don't you don't see it all of the time. It's 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 really a special thing. Yeah, and I you know I feel bad because his senior year. I mean, he had a good year. He didn't have as good a year I think as he had hoped. But yeah, and part of it part of it was he wanted it so badly. But you never question. He always showed up. He was a great practice player. He was uh, he was not a he was a quiet guy, but he was uh, 
I mean, he always led by example. He he was, you know, we always used to say if if your, if your kid could grow up to be as tough as Kyle was, you, you'd be okay because he was <laughs> tough. He was as tough as it got. Yeah, you you mentioned that that 2011 Duke team, and and you say how. Maybe it didn't go, you know, exactly the way they wanted it to. But to me, looking in from the outside, that seemed to be a team with just one of the highest ceilings. They were so talented, and Kyrie got hurt, uh, whatever, fourteen games into the year. But that team, just with the with the senior leadership of Kyle Kyle Sengler and Nolan Smith, was just really, really had a lot. Yeah. Well, you know, coach thought that team could go undefeated. I, I yeah. never thought that because. I mean, look, you're going to lose a game or two. No team's gone undefeated since 1976. And, you know, even Kentucky last year, as good as they were, couldn't do it. That, so, I, I mean, we would have lost a game or two, but not many more than that. But that team was loaded. That team was – in the games that Kyrie was there for, that team was dominant. And we played, we played some good teams. He was – you know, the, the most talented player that I ever played against was Jason Williams when he was at Duke. The most talented player I ever was was like a coach for was on the bench for was Kyrie and and that was he was so good that was only an eleven game sample I mean he was so talented so talented he he so that team you know and then you you know and, and we still losing him we still had a really good year we won the ACC and, and still had a really good year uh, but losing him really obviously hurt us and and trying to put get him back. I don't think we would have won it without him, and so you take the you take the chance to put him in the lineup and and see what happens. And it ended up not working out. But that team, before we lost him, that team was so talented. In this one and done era of college basketball, have you seen a college player more ready and more dominant than Kyrie? In this era, um, you know, Anthony Davis. Uh, was probably a guy like, okay, he's going to be special. But, you know, again, I mean, the, the, the thing that the thing about Kyrie is it, it, I always called him the prodigy because it, he wasn't a great practice player and he wasn't a real hard worker and, and he had to learn. And I even think he's still learning that as a pro, but things, he was like the guy who shows up in a game and just, he's ready to go. He was just so gifted that way. And, so, you know, no, I mean, I, again, Anthony Davis may be the, be the only other guy, but from, from where I sit, Kyrie was, was ready to go. I mean, look, he, he missed two months of the season. He came back in the Sweet 16, you know, came back for the two games to start the tournament, but in the Sweet 16, he's three games back. He goes for 28 in the Sweet 16 against Arizona. Now, we lost that game, but holy mackerel. I mean, it's yeah. 28 after two months out, and that's, that's special. Like that kid was special. So you've been uh, very, very generous with your time. Uh, how about we conclude with some some quick hitter questions, some uh, some fast responses? How's that sound? Sounds good to me. All right. Your favorite basketball player of all time? Well, Larry Bird. I grew up idolizing Larry Bird, and then my favorite when I was young college player growing up was Bobby Hurley. Who's the best basketball player in the world right now? LeBron James. Why not Steph? Is it uh are you looking at it in terms of trends he's, or No, he's great and 
there is certainly a, a case to be made, and I and I identify obviously more with Steph. But you give me a game seven, I got one guy to pick on the planet. I I guarantee you, eighty percent of people will still pick LeBron James, and that's I mean I would I would. Yeah, the, the load he took on in the finals last year was rem- remarkable for sure. Yeah, the thing for me, Jay, like the reason to, and I'll give you a basketball. To me, at the end of the day, size matters. Like size still yeah. matters, and so his ability and his size. And I get, you know, I get Steph, and he's he's believe me, I'm not trying to, I'm not being Oscar Robertson here. Right, Steph yeah. is as good as it gets. He's the best shooter to ever play. But right now, you're asking me this year. I still, I still think LeBron's the best player on the planet. Your favorite TV show? Seinfeld. Oh, great! What a what a show! Yeah. In uh, in researching you, I noticed that you have a dog named Kramer. Yeah, we do. <laughs> that is yep. that that is an amazing name. Yeah, that's a <laughs> yeah. It's a no brainer. I. Uh, we we I, I I love now my favorite my favorite show now um, I love House of Cards yeah uh, but um, but yeah Seinfeld all time my favorite show is Seinfeld I've got a a little poster of uh you know the 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 Kramer the the image I've got that above my hanging above yeah. my bed so <laughs> do you yeah yeah it's yeah, great. You're stranded on a desert island, and you can only bring one book to read for the rest of your life. What book are you bringing? For Whom the Bell Tolls by Ernest Hemingway. Okay. I, have, I haven't read it, but uh, just give me a, a brief reason why, why that's the one. I, you know, the main character is a guy named Robert Jordan. And, you know, when I was in Iraq, uh, I spent, I spent a, a year in Iraq. Uh, and... This, this character, Robert Jordan, is is sort of a man of his own devices uh, back during the Spanish Civil War, and and I read I read uh, for whom the bell tolls like twice when I was in Iraq, and it, it, obviously completely different missions and so on. So, but I just identified with the character. Uh, I'm a huge my my favorite author is Ernest Hemingway, so it's it's got to be a Hemingway book. Um, so that that's my all time favorite. It's it, I, I could read that uh, uh, I could read that a thousand times over. Very nice. Have you read uh, any of the any Tim O'Brien books? Uh, a lot of war books that he writes. Uh, the things they carry you know, ha- is one of my one yeah. of my favorite books. Yeah, that is the only one I've read, and I love I love the things they carried. Uh, you know, it's funny. I I'm not like a big like reader of of war books like i'm more of a political reader mm-hmm. but the, in, in the rock in the the for whom the bell tolls is not necessarily a war novel it's it's about this character robert jordan and sort of the spanish civil war is a, is a tangential plot line to it but um but i have i've read the things they carry very 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 good if you weren't in broadcasting, if you never got into coaching, if you never served in the military, what would you be doing instead? And that's a great, great question. Um, I probably would have gone to law school and run for political office at some point. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know if that. I don't know. I don't know how long 
I would have been in it. But uh, I, I've always, again, I, it's it's weird. It's like a it's like a hot a pastime of mine. Like I'll put on sort of a news channel and I watch the debates. Uh, uh, I'm interested in that stuff. I'm a, I'm a political junkie, believe it or not. Yes, I I, I do believe it. Uh... Mostly because I did some thorough research and read some of your pieces in the Hill, so that that's that's why yeah. I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, if you have if you have one minute, maybe we could uh, we could we could talk a quick 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 politics and then uh, and then call it a day. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All right, great. So uh, in your your most recent piece for the Hill, which I which I read this morning, um, I like I very much liked your point about how a person, how people like uh, Donald Trump may be perceived as a so-called political outsider, being outside of the Washington establishment and thus, you know, a different voice, a different view. But uh, I, liked, I liked your point that just simply because you're not, you know, the same type of Washington politician who's been, been in that game for so long, it doesn't mean that you're not subject to the same sort of thinking and mindset, and it doesn't mean you're fresh or original or or beneficial in any way. Um, so my my question for you is going to be broad and gigantic and very very forward looking. Um, but what does a a Washington outsider look like, or what ought a Washington outsider look like? I mean, I, I don't think I, we don't know. You know, you know what I mean? Like, I, look, you you could say like Donald Trump could tell us he's not an outsider. Uh, or that he is an outsider, rather. Um, but a politician, to, to me, is somebody who's political. And in order to win a, a, an election, you, you've got to play the game. And he's as savvy, yeah. he's as accomplished a politician that we, as we have seen in recent times. And, and honestly, the, 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 the savviest one we've seen before, Donald Trump was Ronald Reagan. I mean, if you go back, I've, I mean, I've, again, I'm a chunky, so I study these things. You read some of the stuff that was being said about Ronald Reagan when he he first started running for office. It, it's it's it would it would blow your mind how eerily similar it is to the things that are being said about Donald Trump. And, and so it, and again, he's a, he's as savvy and as adept a politician as we have had. So. Look, it's a sliding scale. I mean, we all define it perhaps in different ways. Um, but politician to me is not somebody who necessarily has held office or holds office. Politician to me is somebody who can move the masses to vote for them and move the masses to believe in whatever sort of issue-based platform that they would run on. And you've got to be kidding me with the job. Trump's son, he's as he's as political as anybody. Yeah, it's 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 so true, and you know, go- governance clearly does not take place in a vacuum. You have to you have to be part of politics. You have to play the game to ever you know get your foot in the door to to even be even to be anyone who's 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 being talked about and be in a position of power. It's yeah, it's it's very interesting. Um, uh, and you know what he's you know what he's done, Jay. And I, I said this in the last article I wrote. He, he's changed the paradigm too on how we consume elections. It's, you know, we, I worry about the way we consume elections now because we consume elections or we consume this election like how we consume all the other information in our life. If, you know, we want sound bites, we want quick hitters, we want 
We want anger. We want uh, some volatility. We want whatever can be heard above the white noise. And so that's what he has embraced, and that's what he does. And and we don't we don't we don't have a whole lot of depth in the way that we consume things now. So we we don't care like okay, build a wall on on the border and make Mexico pay for it. Okay, like we don't. There's no real depth, and that that's that's partly on us. Trump. What we don't understand is Donald Trump is a survivor, and so I don't blame Donald Trump. I blame the way in which we consume elections, and and again, I'm I'm the, the minority apparently because he's he's dominating every poll that's out there. Um, but it's it, he has changed the paradigm on how we consume all of this stuff. Yeah, it's. It's 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 an interesting subject, and it'll be interesting to see how it how it goes forward uh, through the primaries and into the general. Uh, Chris, yeah. you've been unbelievably generous with your time, and I really appreciate you coming on. This was this was this was great. Yeah, hey, man, easy to do as always, and I appreciate you asking. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, have have a great night. It was it was great talking to you. Take care. All right, Jake.